The nation was in shock. The fallout of the assassination had left a fog of grief. The murdered man had been a controversial figure, but he had also been known, even beloved, as a powerful orator, inspiring leader, and honorable family man. And now, he was dead. His name was John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States. In the weeks following his death, no one wanted to hear a bad word about the man. Nation of Islam President Elijah Muhammad ordered his ministers to not publicly comment on the assassination. The organization had been steeped in recent controversy, and Muhammad knew politicizing the president's death would be a bad move. Only one man disobeyed Elijah's order of silence, his second-in-command, Malcolm X. Malcolm commented on Kennedy's death in a December 1963 speech proclaiming that the chickens had come home to roost. Malcolm was censured by Elijah and the rest of the Nation of Islam's leadership. The event kicked off a series of rifts within the Nation of Islam, and ultimately, it led to another assassination, that of Malcolm X. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm your host, Bill. This is our first episode on Malcolm X, the civil rights leader who was assassinated by Talmadge Hayer, Norman 3X Butler, and Thomas 15X Johnson, all members of the Nation of Islam, a group he helped bring to the national spotlight. Since it's such a big story, we'll be covering the assassination of Malcolm X over three episodes. This week, we'll take a look at the fractured relationship between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, the charismatic leader of the Nation of Islam who helped bring Malcolm into the fold. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, and the best way to help us is by leaving a five-star review while you're there. A new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Elijah Muhammad was born Elijah Poole on October 7, 1897, in Sandersville, Georgia. He was the fifth child of William Poole, a sharecropper turned Baptist preacher, and Mariah Poole, a domestic worker. William's power as a man of faith instilled in Elijah a desire to become a preacher himself. However, once Elijah began to study the Bible on his own, he became unsatisfied with how little he'd learned from his father's lessons. He vowed he wouldn't join the church until he had a more complete understanding of its scripture. As a youth, Elijah had less time than he'd like to focus on his religious studies. The pools were only one generation removed from slavery, and much of their time and effort was spent battling poverty and discrimination. Once, when Elijah was a child, he took a walk to a nearby town to sell some firewood. As he reached the town center, he saw a crowd of white townsfolk gathered around a tree. He knew whatever was happening had to be bad news, but he found himself approaching the tree anyway. The body of a black man hung from the branches. 
he had been lynched for supposedly raping a white woman. There had been no arrests, no formal charges, no due process. The vigilantes who carried out the deed were never punished. Elijah ran home. The image of that poor man dangling from the tree would haunt him for the rest of his life. Though he was still young, Elijah vowed on that day that he would devote his life to making things better for his fellow black citizens. Elijah left home at age 16 and found work as a railroad laborer. In 1919, when he was 23, he met a girl named Clara Evans. The courtship was fast, and the two married on March 17, 1919. By 1922, the couple had two children, Emmanuel and Ethel. Elijah enjoyed his job with the railroad, but he didn't want his children to grow up in Georgia where they'd witness the same racial violence that had plagued his own childhood. So in April of 1923, the Pools moved to Detroit. Detroit was a step up from Georgia, but racial tensions were still high. As a result, Elijah struggled to find consistent work. For the next few years, the pools barely scraped by. Ashamed of his perceived failure, Elijah descended into alcoholism. His life became routine. He was either drunk or discussing scripture with his family. In 1931, Elijah's parents moved to Detroit to live with him and his family. Elijah still struggled to provide and buried his sorrows in drink. His father, William, eventually intervened. He told Elijah about a new organization called the Nation of Islam, led by a man named W.D. Fard. Elijah first visited the organization sometime in late 1931. He was shocked at how the gatherings didn't resemble a typical Muslim congregation. Though they observed traditional Muslim practices, the Nation of Islam was also strongly devoted to racial justice. Elijah was astounded at how radical Fard's meetings were. Fard argued for the creation of a separate state for the descendants of slaves. He predicted a divine destruction of the white world and that blacks would inhabit the paradise that followed. For his entire life, Elijah had been seeking two things, a greater understanding of the word of God and escape from the racial oppression that had surrounded him all his life. In that basement in Detroit, where the Nation of Islam gathered, it seemed that he had found both. Elijah's devotion was intense and immediate. After that first gathering, he met Fard and told him he believed he was the second coming of Christ. Fard responded, My name is Mahdi. I am God. I came to guide you into the right path that you may be successful and see the hereafter. Elijah believed in Fard so strongly that he even prayed to Fard when he was at home. Elijah soon brought his wife, Clara, into the fold. On their first meeting, Fard told Clara that Elijah was gifted and that he should begin preaching himself. At the age of 33, Elijah Poole had finally found his purpose. He abandoned the name Poole. That name had been given to Elijah's family by a slave owner. He took on the name Kareem, and Fard appointed Elijah as his supreme minister, second only to Fard himself. 
Elijah's appointment was controversial among the other church leaders. Many of the nation's leaders were college-educated, whereas Elijah hadn't finished the third grade. But there was nothing they could do. Elijah set to work recruiting new members into the nation of Islam. Fard even sent him to Chicago to deliver sermons and spread the word to new cities. With this growth, public officials and law enforcement became more and more concerned about the mobilization of black Muslims. And in 1932, their prejudices were tragically confirmed. At 9 a.m. on November 20th, a man named Robert Harris invited his lodger, James Smith, into his living room. As Smith entered the room, he spotted what appeared to be some kind of sacrificial altar. He realized he might be in danger and tried to leave, but he was too slow. Harris incapacitated Smith. Harris told his captive that he was planning to fulfill an ancient prophecy that had been commanded by the gods of Islam. He wanted Smith to be a willing sacrifice. Smith wasn't keen on this idea. Tragically, his efforts to convince Harris to let him go were fruitless. As soon as the clock struck noon, Harris ritualistically murdered Smith with a knife. We should note this event wasn't racially motivated. Both men were black. Police tracked down Harris and arrested him for the murder. Investigators discovered that Harris was a radical Muslim who belonged to an organization called the Order of Islam. Though this order was separate from the Nation of Islam, that distinction didn't matter in the ensuing anti-Muslim sentiment. Harris also provided police with a list of names of prominent white officials he had planned to murder, including the mayor and a prominent judge. Although the police lacked any proof that Harris was connected to the Nation of Islam, a warrant was issued for W.D. Fard's arrest anyway. Fard was arrested on the morning of November 23, 1932. He denied ordering Harris or anyone to sacrifice human beings in the nation's name. However, his teachings didn't make him look very good. He had preached in the past that killing white devils would gain one entrance into paradise. Following his interrogation, the police had Fard forcibly committed to a psychiatric hospital for two weeks. During this time, Fard became a noble symbol of religious freedom as well as a symbol for the black community at large in its struggle with law enforcement. After Fard was released, he was ordered to leave Detroit. Law enforcement feared his influence on the black community, which was growing more and more restless as a result of Fard's arrest. Fard left Detroit and appointed Elijah as the new leader of the Nation of Islam. As a symbol of this appointment, Fard granted Elijah his own assumed last name, Muhammad. Elijah's early months of leadership were difficult. Nation officials objected to his appointment and broke away, forming new Muslim societies. Furthermore, police crackdowns on black Muslim organizations throughout 1933 scared off potential new members and made current followers rethink their membership. With the organization in jeopardy, Elijah moved its headquarters from Detroit to Chicago, but found it difficult to recruit new converts. In 1935, Elijah moved again to Washington, D.C. to study Islam at the Library of Congress. He remained there for several years, relatively undisturbed, 
But America's involvement in World War II saw the nation of Islam embroiled in controversy once again. On May 8, 1942, Elijah was arrested for evading the draft. He protested the arrest on the grounds that he was 45 and the age range for draft registration was 18 to 44. Furthermore, as a Muslim, he conscientiously objected to the war effort. Despite his protestations, Elijah was imprisoned for the war's duration. Upon his release in 1946, he returned to Chicago, where he found a surge of interest in the Nation of Islam. His refusal to participate in the war had inspired others, and new members began to join in droves. In 1948, Elijah received a letter from one of these new members. The man who wrote the letter was serving time at Charlestown State Prison for larceny and breaking and entering. He had learned about the Nation of Islam and sought Elijah's guidance. His name was Malcolm X. Coming up next, we'll discuss how Malcolm X went from a convict to a religious icon. Now back to the story. Before we begin our coverage of Malcolm X, we wanted to make a quick note. Many facts about the life of Malcolm X are contested. We've done diligent research and are presenting what we found as the most likely biographical information on Malcolm X. But please bear in mind that records of his early life are conflicting. Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little on May 19, 1925, in Omaha, Nebraska. Like Elijah Muhammad, he was the son of a preacher, the Reverend Earl Little, and his wife Louise. Malcolm was a victim of racism before he was even born. One night, while Louise was still pregnant, a group of men wearing white hoods approached their home on horseback. It was the Ku Klux Klan. The Klansmen shouted for Earl to come outside. Earl had preached in favor of black empowerment, and the men wanted to run him out of town. Earl wasn't there that night. Louise opened the door, hoping the Klansmen would be moved by her pregnancy. They were not. The horsemen galloped around the house, shattered all the windows, and rode back into the night. Earl and Louise left Omaha after Malcolm was born. The Littles settled in East Lansing, Michigan, where they raised Malcolm and his siblings. Like his future mentor, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm was heavily influenced by his father's preaching. Earl was a Baptist preacher who belonged to the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, which preached black race purity and advocated for the return to the African homeland. Malcolm was skeptical of Christianity and religion in general, but he gravitated towards the UNIA's message and often accompanied his father to meetings. One night in 1931, when Malcolm was six, he woke up to the sound of his mother's screams. He went to the living room, where a group of policemen were trying to calm Louise down. They told him that his father Earl had been killed in a streetcar accident. Malcolm believed it wasn't an accident. Nobody could prove it, but there were whispers in town that Earl was attacked by members of the Black Legion who made it look like an accident. In his heart, Malcolm knew his father had been assassinated. By 1934, 
Nine-year-old Malcolm, his mother, and his siblings were in dire straits. Louise was unable to collect on Earl's life insurance policy and had to go on public aid. But the Great Depression was at its height, and the family was destitute. Louise's mental state was in decline. She suffered a breakdown in late 1938 and was committed at the state mental hospital in Kalamazoo. Malcolm and his siblings went into the foster system. Despite his turbulent childhood, Malcolm was an adept student. He kept journals and wrote letters, which were later acquired by his half-sister, Ella. We can see, even in these teenage letters, uh, that this is someone of remarkable human ability and potential, uh, someone who didn't necessarily need the nation of Islam uh, to make him into a, a quite striking figure. Here's Professor David Garrow of Emory University describing the letters. The collection of Malcolm X's papers are mostly from 1938 to 1955 when he was a teenager and young adult. The papers hold little trace of the man who would later become the leader of the nation of Islam. Instead, they show Malcolm Harpy Little, a tall, skinny eighth grader who lived in a group home in Michigan. That Malcolm liked a jitterbug, admired pretty girls, and wanted to be a lawyer someday. The collection is on loan from an Atlanta antiques dealer. It originally belonged to Malcolm X's half-sister, Ella Collins. Chad Rodemeyer, Atlanta. Despite his bright mind, the lack of support Malcolm received from his white teachers and foster parents eventually led him to drop out of school and move to Boston to find work. Malcolm got a job shining shoes at the Roseland State Ballroom. He loved city life and immersed himself in the urban black culture of Boston. When World War II began, Malcolm was only 16 and was too young to be drafted. With most young men going off to fight, Malcolm was able to get a good job on the railroad selling refreshments to passengers. The railroad job took Malcolm between Boston and New York City. The first time he stepped foot in Harlem, he knew he belonged there. When one of Malcolm's friends told him about a job opening as a waiter at his favorite Harlem bar, he took it without a second thought. Working at the bar, Malcolm gained a different sort of education. He learned about gambling, con artistry, thievery, and pimping. Malcolm was still a good student, and he proved adept at all of these trades. Then, Malcolm started to sell marijuana and other drugs. Using his old railroad connections, Malcolm started traveling across the East Coast, selling his product to touring musicians. It wasn't long before Malcolm was hooked on his own product. When selling pot wasn't enough to support his habit, Malcolm turned to armed robbery. While Malcolm was skilled at avoiding the police, he couldn't avoid the scrutiny of local rivals. Malcolm ran afoul of a hustler named West Indian Archie, who thought Malcolm had cheated him on a bet. Malcolm maintained it was an honest mistake, but Archie wouldn't budge. His honor had been besmirched, and on the streets of Harlem, that was a much bigger issue than money. Fearing for his life, Malcolm fled New York and returned to Boston. There, he recruited some friends to help him rob the homes of wealthy white people. In addition to two friends from his time in Boston, Malcolm convinced a white woman he had dated and her sister to act as his accomplices. One of Malcolm's friends worked as a waiter for exclusive house parties and could identify targets ripe for burglarizing. The scheme was simple but effective. 
Once the target was selected, the two ladies posed as saleswomen, pollsters, or any other job that could get them invited into the house. They'd memorize the layout and report back to Malcolm. That night, Malcolm and a few men would use the intel to rob the house. They were never caught, in the act at least. One day in 1945, Malcolm paid a visit to a repair shop he frequented. One of the expensive watches Malcolm had stolen needed repairs, and he was planning to pick it up. He arrived at the store and found himself face-to-face with a squad of police, waiting to catch him with the stolen watch. The trial was racially skewed. The prosecutor in Malcolm's case didn't seem bothered by the act of robbery. He was more upset that Malcolm had recruited white women to assist with his crimes. Malcolm was sentenced to 10 years in prison in February of 1946. He wasn't even 21 years old. The conditions at Charlestown State Prison were barbaric. The prison was built in 1805 and hadn't been updated since. Malcolm's cell was so cramped that he could touch both walls while laying on his cot, and his toilet was a covered pail. During his first year in prison, Malcolm tried to get high by any means possible. First, by ingesting huge amounts of nutmeg, and later by purchasing drugs from the guards. He often found himself in solitary confinement due to his hostile and uncooperative behavior. In 1947, Malcolm met fellow inmate John Bembry. Bembry was highly educated, and Malcolm marveled at how he could command total respect with words alone. Bembry inspired Malcolm to rekindle his academic interests, and he started taking correspondence courses in English and writing. In 1948, Malcolm received a letter from his brother Philbert, who told Malcolm he had joined the Nation of Islam, calling it the natural religion for the black man. He strongly encouraged Malcolm to join. Malcolm was resistant to Philbert's suggestion. He was so anti-religion that his fellow inmates had given him the nickname Satan. However, he received a similar letter about the Nation of Islam from his other brother, Reginald, so he reconsidered. Malcolm's siblings wanted to help him turn his life around. But first, they needed to see that he was committed to self-improvement. On Reginald's instruction, Malcolm stopped eating pork and smoking cigarettes. Reginald would not explain why Malcolm had to adhere to these rules, which naturally made Malcolm more curious. Finally, Reginald told Malcolm that God had come to America. He had revealed himself to a man named Elijah Muhammad and had blessed the nation of Islam. After Reginald left, Malcolm grappled with what his brother had told him. Soon, Malcolm got the full court press from his siblings, receiving at least two letters a day from them encouraging him to join the nation of Islam. Malcolm was drawn to Elijah's teachings, especially the concept that the original man was black. In 1948, Malcolm decided to write a letter to Elijah Muhammad wanting to know more. In his reply, Elijah told Malcolm to have courage, that he wasn't a bad man and he could endure this suffering. In 1950, Malcolm made his conversion official. By this point, he was actively recruiting his fellow black inmates to follow Elijah's teachings. He discarded the name Little and began signing his name Malcolm X, signifying the true African family name that he would never know. 
Malcolm spent the rest of his time in jail educating himself at every possible moment. He joined the prison's weekly debate program, which introduced him to public speaking and began recruiting his fellow black inmates to the Nation of Islam. In the spring of 1952, Malcolm was finally granted parole. He decided to go visit his family in Detroit. He stayed with his brother Wilfred, who educated Malcolm about the day-to-day -day life that was expected of him as a member of the Nation of Islam. Malcolm began attending meetings at the Detroit Temple No. 1, which W.D. Fard had founded in 1931. He was surprised that the small space had any empty seats. Malcolm was eager to recruit more members, but Wilfred told him to hold off until he could meet Elijah Muhammad in person. Malcolm finally met his mentor in September of 1952 when the Detroit Temple traveled to a meeting at Elijah's Temple in Chicago. As the caravan of 10 cars drove from Detroit to Chicago, Malcolm felt giddiness he hadn't experienced since he was a child. As the meeting in Chicago began, Malcolm was bursting with anticipation. Would Elijah live up to the great man Malcolm had pictured in his imagination? The moment he laid eyes upon Elijah, Malcolm's worries were put to rest. Just as Elijah had been transfixed when he met W.D. Fard, so was Malcolm when Elijah appeared at the rear of Temple No. 2. Malcolm was shocked when Elijah singled him out by name. Elijah told the congregation about Malcolm's dedication to the Nation of Islam while he was in prison and invited Malcolm and his family to join him for dinner that night. Malcolm found that he was at ease with Elijah. Elijah encouraged him to recruit more members, particularly young people, who would be more receptive to the nation's message. Malcolm had been hustling for his entire life just to stay alive, and yet he had never found something that was actually worth living for. Finally, after a life of crime and imprisonment, Malcolm had found his calling through the Nation of Islam, just as Elijah had. Malcolm was officially part of the Nation of Islam's hierarchy, and his commitment to the cause would take the nation to heights Elijah could have never imagined and would grow to resent. Coming up, we'll discuss Malcolm's rise within the Nation of Islam. Now, back to the story. After only a few months of work, 28-year-old Malcolm X had tripled the membership of Temple No. 1 in Detroit. Although they still had fewer than 200 members, Malcolm would lead caravans of over 25 cars to meetings in Chicago, where he would have private dinner meetings with Elijah Muhammad. Elijah encouraged Malcolm to start speaking to his assembly in Detroit, and in the summer of 1953, he named Malcolm the assistant minister of Temple No. 1 in Detroit. Whenever he got the chance, Malcolm would make the drive from Detroit to Chicago to spend time with Elijah and his family. He eventually quit his job at the Ford Motor Company and devoted himself full-time to spreading the Nation of Islam's message. He stayed at Elijah's home in Chicago for several months, learning everything he could. In late 1953, Elijah instructed Malcolm to return to Boston, where he founded Temple Number no. 11. 
By March 1954, the temple was established enough for Malcolm to move on to Philadelphia, where he recruited enough followers to found Temple No. 12 just two months later. Malcolm was ready to take on a larger role. Elijah appointed him the minister of New York's Temple No. 7 in June of 1954. He was finally able to return to his old haunts in Harlem, albeit under very different circumstances. It had been nine years since Malcolm had fled New York in disgrace, and his old acquaintances were shocked by how much he'd changed. He sought out Archie, the man who had forced him to leave the city, and the two men reconciled their differences. With his violent past firmly in the rearview mirror, Malcolm set about finding new converts for the New York Temple. Progress was slow. Malcolm could attract an audience to his sermons, but when he called for people to embrace Elijah's teachings, few accepted. Amid the struggles in New York, Malcolm was able to increase membership at his former temple in Philadelphia and establish new temples in Springfield, Massachusetts and Hartford, Connecticut. He was eager to further grow the nation of Islam, but Elijah preached patience. By 1956, Malcolm's New York Temple No. 7 had grown enough that Elijah allowed Malcolm to purchase a car to expand his recruitment efforts. In the span of five months, Malcolm drove over 30,000 miles, spreading the Nation of Islam's message. During this time, Malcolm fell in love with a member of the New York Temple, Betty X, who had also shed her given last name. They were married on January 14, 1958, and their first daughter, Atala, was born that November. Until that point, the Nation of Islam hadn't attracted any major media attention and was grown mostly through local grassroots effort. But on April 14, 1957, an act of violence in Harlem thrust Malcolm and the Nation of Islam into the spotlight. There are many versions of the story of Hinton Johnson. Even his name is contested. In some accounts, he is Hinton Johnson, and in others, he is Johnson Hinton. There are, however, certain details that are widely accepted. A nation member named Hinton Johnson and a friend were walking down the street when they saw two white policemen beating a black man with a nightstick. Johnson and his friend rushed to intervene. The cops said the man had resisted arrest and ordered Johnson to move along. Johnson tried to pull the policeman away from the man, but the police only turned their ire on Johnson, beating and arresting him as well. Johnson's friend called Malcolm, who mobilized his followers. Soon, over 50 Nation of Islam members had gathered outside the Harlem police precinct to demand that Johnson receive medical attention. The police tried to say that Johnson wasn't there. Malcolm was unmoved. He urged his crowd to keep up the noise. Eventually, they arranged for an ambulance to take him home. Only then did Malcolm signal for his people to disperse. The next morning, the story headlined the Harlem newspaper, The Amsterdam News. The Nation of Islam was beginning to attract attention for standing up against racial injustice. In the spring of 1959, a journalist named Louis Lomax began filming Nation of Islam meetings for a documentary titled The Hate That Hate Produced. 
The film focused on the nation's anti-white message, and it sent shockwaves throughout the country. For many Americans, white and black, the documentary served as an introduction to the black nationalist movement, and that made quite a few people uncomfortable. Soon, the nation was under attack for its perceived support of racial violence. Malcolm was furious that the nation was being characterized as preaching violence and hate. Elijah eventually allowed him to go on the counterattack. Malcolm became the Nation of Islam's mouthpiece, appearing on radio and television panel discussions to debate against their detractors. And Malcolm's speeches were incendiary. Here's a clip from 1961. Whether it's in Providence or Mississippi, there is not a black man or woman in America who has intelligence, who hasn't gone somewhere and around whites and felt like he was a social leper. The Nation of Islam started holding massive rallies, which attracted 10,000 people or more and gathered vast sums of donation money. Soon, Elijah and Malcolm were in a position to build the Nation of Islam into a force beyond anything they had ever thought possible. In 1961, the Nation of Islam started planning the construction of a $20 million Islamic center in Chicago. But the nation's rallies and sudden growth began to take a toll on Elijah, who was by now almost 65 years old and in poor health. Malcolm took on the featured speaker role at rallies in Elijah's stead, as well as a large portion of his mentor's decision-making duties. He began speaking on college campuses, either making speeches or participating in panel discussions to packed lecture halls and amphitheaters. Here he is at Brown University. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that this has made the 20 million black people here in America just like a dead people. Dead economically, dead mentally, dead spiritually, morally, and otherwise. And integration will not bring a man back from the grave. Although Malcolm felt his college talks benefited the nation, Elijah disapproved of them. As a relatively uneducated person, Elijah himself felt unequipped to speak at academic institutions. The first seeds of resentment were taking root between the two men. As Elijah's health worsened, it became harder for him to be involved in the Nation of Islam's day-to-day -day affairs. His doctors recommended that a dry climate could improve his condition, so the nation purchased a home for him in Phoenix. Malcolm took on more and more responsibility, sometimes flying across the country as often as four times a week to speak at the over 100 temples he had helped found. On top of all this, he maintained a marathon schedule of radio, TV, and newspaper interviews in addition to his public speaking commitments. With Malcolm's rise to prominence came whispers that he was trying to take power away from Elijah. He vehemently denied this. Malcolm was always sure to give credit to Elijah for everything he did. But he noticed that his own accomplishments were barely mentioned in the Nation of Islam's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, which Malcolm himself had founded. Malcolm came to suspect that a faction within the Nation of Islam might be working against him. Although Malcolm publicly expressed support and belief in Elijah, he privately began to have doubts about his mentor. Rumors spread that Elijah wasn't adhering to the moral code that the Nation of Islam required. For several years, Malcolm had heard whispers that Elijah wasn't faithful to his wife, Clara, 
and that he had fathered children with six of his personal secretaries. Finally, Malcolm asked Elijah if the rumors had any merit. When Elijah confirmed they were true, Malcolm was devastated. Malcolm felt he had a duty to tell the nations and other high-level ministers about what he had learned. He wanted them to prepare for what he believed was going to be incredible backlash against the nation of Islam. But to Malcolm's surprise, his honesty worked against him. Ministers from the Chicago temple made it seem as though Malcolm was telling people about Elijah's infidelity in order to weaken the nation rather than as a measure to throw water on the fire before it spread too far. Making matters worse, Malcolm's response to the assassination of President Kennedy on November 22, 1963, put him at odds with Elijah. Within hours of Kennedy's death, Elijah instructed his ministers to make no remarks on the assassination. But a few days after Kennedy was killed, Malcolm made a speech at New York's Manhattan Cantor titled, God's Judgment of White America. It centered around the theme of, as you sow, so shall you reap. And Malcolm held white leaders, including the late President Kennedy and his family, culpable for the continued oppression of black Americans. After the speech, Malcolm was asked his thoughts on the assassination. Despite Elijah's order, Malcolm couldn't resist an opportunity to speak his mind. He said he thought Kennedy's assassination was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. The hate white men harbored had now spread to their own kind. Elijah was furious. In addition to disobeying his direct order, Malcolm had brought further negative attention to the Nation of Islam. As punishment, Elijah imposed a 90-day period of silence on Malcolm, forbidding him to speak to the press as well as to his own congregation. Malcolm accepted the punishment without complaint. The Nation of Islam's only official comment on the situation was that Malcolm would be reinstated in 90 days if he submitted to Elijah's reprimandation. A few days after his suspension, Malcolm learned about the first of many death threats against him. To his shock and dismay, these threats came from within the nation of Islam itself. It was in that moment that Malcolm came to suspect that Elijah Muhammad, his mentor, his instructor, his savior, may well be plotting to have him killed. Those fears would be realized just two years later at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan, where in 1965, Malcolm X presided over his final speech. Tune in to our next episode for the story of Malcolm X's assassination. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed part one of our series on the assassination of Malcolm X. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. See you next Monday. 
Assassinations Was Created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Alex Benedin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.